I'll be reading from uh, the English Standard Version, um, just solely out of preference. Um, it's what I do most of my reading in. Um, you're welcome to read along um, with whatever version you like. It won't compromise the integrity of the message. Don't worry. Uh, but we're going to be in uh, the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 22 through 36. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, your word is precious, wonderful to behold. May your wisdom be evident to us this morning. Amen. Quote, if you believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it is not the Gospel you believe, but yourself. St. Augustine. On April 21st, 1803, incumbent president Thomas Jefferson sent a letter and a biblical manuscript to his dear friend and former colleague, Dr. Benjamin Rush, professor of medical theory at the University of Pennsylvania. The aforementioned manuscript, which is more affectionately known today as the Jefferson Bible, can still be found on display in the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. What that manuscript consisted of was a physically altered version of the four Gospels by Jefferson's own hand, in which he took a pair of scissors and a King James 
Version Bible and began to cut away any reference towards the divine or miracles to better form the image of Christ he thought to be. And so this morning as we begin, I want to read an excerpt from the aforementioned letter that Jefferson sent to his friend Dr. Rush concerning that manuscript. Quote, To the corruptions of Christianity I am indeed opposed, but not to the genuine precepts of Jesus himself. I am a Christian in the only sense that he wished anyone to be, sincerely attached to his doctrines in preference to all others, ascribing to himself every human excellence and believing he never claimed any other. While this syllabus is meant to place the character of Jesus in its truth and highlight as no imposter himself but a great reformer of the Hebrew code of religion, it is not to be understood that I am with the side of spiritualism. He preaches the efficacy of forgiveness of sin. I require counterpoise of good works to redeem it. It is the innocence of his character, the purity and sublimity of his moral precepts, the eloquence of his inculcations, the beauty of his epilogues in which he conveys them that I so much admire, end quote. What I want to propose to you this morning is that perhaps much like Thomas Jefferson, we approach the Gospels in the very same vein. Now granted, the overwhelming majority of us probably do this on a much more subconscious level. I don't expect you to go home and grab a pair of scissors and begin cutting out the stuff about Jesus you don't agree with. But in essence, what I'm proposing is that when we approach the Gospels of Christ for to read, to interpret, to understand, we have an internal expectation that it's going to reflect back what we already see in ourselves. And the problem with that is that it produces a Gospel that we live by in perfect congruence with who we are for better or for worse. John Mark Coomer put it this way, quote, what you think about God will shape your destiny in life. If you think of God as a homophobic, racist, and mad at the world, this distorted vision of reality will shape you into a religious bigot who is homophobic, racist, and mad at the world. If you think of God as a left coast educated LGBTQ affirming progressive, that will shape you into the stereotype of the wealthy bohemian with the we-will-not-tolerate-intolerance bumper sticker on the back of your hybrid. If you think of God as a cosmic version of a life coach, there to maximize your life, that will shape you into a self-help yuppie, even if you dress it up and call it following Jesus. End quote. I want to go so far as to say today, that after 2,000 years of us doing this, we have intrinsically lost the true gospel of Christ. Or rather, we have so allowed ourselves to affect the gospel that we all end up practicing, preaching, and living out a different gospel than that of the other. 
let me put it this way. If I asked each of you to tell me the gospel as succinctly as you possibly could, I have no doubt that every one of you would be able to give me an answer. I also have no doubt that not a single one of your answers would be identical to another. But the gospel doesn't change. A Christian news editorial wrote an article that asked high-ranking leaders in the church across multiple denominations to describe the gospel in seven words or less. I'd like to share a few of them with you. God loves the whole world, no exceptions. Jesus' humanity occasions our divinity, very Zen-ish. Sin destroys life, Jesus resurrects it. It is our birthright to reunite with God. Found, forgiven, freed, filled, fantastic family, finally. I call that the F word gospel. (laughs) Peace to God's people everywhere on earth. God changes because we cannot. Love God, love others, love yourself, serve. Now, while all of these definitions are good, holy, noble things, and certainly you can find congruence with who we know God to be and with the scriptures, I want to propose to you today that not a single one of these is the gospel. Therefore, the goal for today, as we look at Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, is to arrive at a clear and succinct understanding of the gospel of Jesus. If you would turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Before I begin reading, let me set the stage. Acts chapter 2 is an account of Peter's sermon immediately following the event of Pentecost. It is the very first gospel message after Jesus has ascended to the Father and by someone other than Jesus. The Spirit of Yahweh has descended upon the disciples and the men of Israel who are there have witnessed them declaring the word of the Lord in every language. And in the midst of all this commotion, Peter stands up and is led to declare to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll begin reading at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Let's stop here for a moment. The very first thing that Peter feels led to tell us concerning the gospel is to proclaim the life that Jesus lived. Specifically, That through the power of God 
within him, he was able to perform miracle after miracle after miracle to give testimony to the sovereignty of God as well as his own messiahship. Furthermore, that these men were eyewitnesses to that truth. Peter's first point in his gospel message is that the life of Christ that they all witnessed proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was the Son of God long before they chose to crucify him. And in an instant, then, from verse 22 to 23, we move from the testimony of Jesus' life to the reality of his death. In verse 23, Peter does two things. First, he gives account to the truth that God planned and knew about Jesus' crucifixion from day one. The event of Christ's death was not unexpected in the least, but rather necessary for the scriptures to be fulfilled. And second, that even though this was all a part of God's meta-narrative, he ascribes responsibility to the men who issued his crucifixion and the men who carried it out. There is no possible way they can claim innocence of that. While it is not pertinent to the scope of today's message, I find this verse very indicative of the reality that God can still use the sinfulness of men for the redemption of the world. Let's pick back up at verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." should be blatantly clear what Peter is talking about here. He has first hit on the life of Jesus, followed by the death of Jesus, and now we arrive at his resurrection. Now you may be asking yourself, why does Peter devote so much more effort to the resurrection of Christ than that of his life and death? And my answer to that would be because it's the far more controversial aspect of his gospel. Everybody lives, everybody dies, but not everybody is resurrected. 
and certainly not of their own accord. Peter therefore enlists Psalm 16 as a source to support his claim. This Jesus is the very descendant of David that fulfills the promises of the scriptures. This Jesus is the one whom the former king of Israel foresaw as the Messiah of the world. This Jesus is the one that they themselves have witnessed alive and well post-crucifixion. He is dead no longer. Verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Amen. Concerning the gospel of Christ, Peter has made three clear points so far. The life of Jesus. The death of Jesus. And the resurrection of Jesus. And so it begs the question then, what is Peter addressing here? He is talking about Jesus' lordship. The Greek word for gospel is euangelion. It is a word that's formed by two root words, you and angelion. You is the Greek word for good. It's where we get the word euphoric from, meaning good feeling. Angelion is the Greek word for messenger. It's where we get the word angel from, which literally means message, messenger, messenger. And so euangelion, or gospel, literally translates to good message, or as more popularly understood, good news. Now mind you, the word euangelion was not just thrown around in Roman imperial culture of this time willy-nilly. It wasn't like, oh, let me share with you the gospel, I just saved 15% on my car insurance good news. That's not what it meant. In fact, it was only used in one specific sense. It was considered euangelion, it was considered gospel, good news, when a new king was either born or had ascended to the throne. So when Caesar Augustus became the emperor of Rome, the Roman gospel became Caesar is Lord. And you would verbally extol that in support. It was representative of a sign of submission and loyalty to the empire. So if you were traveling and you entered a new city, a soldier or a citizen of Rome might approach you and say, tell me the gospel, tell me the euangelion, share with me the good news. And in turn, you would extol 
Caesar is Lord. But Peter here has the audacity to make the treasonous claim that not Caesar, but Jesus is Lord. And not even so Lord in the way that Caesar is Lord of Rome, but that Jesus is Lord not over just Caesar and Rome, but the entirety of the world, of sin, of death, of humanity, of creation combined. That was Peter's gospel message. The book of Acts contains six different gospel messages in them, gospel sermons. Chapters 2, 3, 4, 10, 13, and 17. Most of them are from Peter. A few of them are from Paul. Do you know what each and every one of them has in common? They all talk about the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and the lordship of Jesus. But they also share in common what is not in their gospel message. None of them mention hell. None of them mention heaven. None of them mention repentance. Only one mentions sin. The only gospel that you will ever find in the New Testament is one concerned with four things. Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and lordship. I made the claim earlier that I wanted to attempt to describe the gospel as succinctly as possible this morning. The Christian editorial I referred to earlier asked for a description using seven words or less. I'm going to give it to you in four. The first word is Jesus. He's the subject, uh, rather object of the sentence. By Jesus, I mean the historical man, the baby born of Mary in Bethlehem who was raised in Nazareth and became a carpenter. The second word is Christ. It is a noun that's functioning as an adjective to modify another noun, in this case, the object of the sentence, which is Jesus. By Christ, I mean the one true Messiah, the Son of God sent to pay for the sin of the world on our behalf. The third word is is. It's the verb of the sentence. The is is very important. It is not It is not was, and it is not will be. The is places the reality of Jesus as Christ in constant perpetuity. And the fourth word is Lord. This is the subject of the sentence. It emphasizes what Jesus Christ has become and now remains forevermore. Jesus Christ is Lord. That 
is our gospel. That is the good news that the church has to offer the world. That everything in this universe, even sin, even death, has been put into subjection under his feet. The very God of the universe, who loves every molecule of his creation, is back on the throne of the cosmos for eternity. This is where the church must begin. For if you don't believe in Christ to be Lord, how can you repent? Let God Almighty change the hearts of his beloved children, but let the church proclaim the gospel that Jesus Christ is Lord. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, your gospel is amazing news to this world. As we go out today, tomorrow, and the life beyond, May your gospel go before us in word and deed. May we extol from the rooftops, maybe write it on our door frames, that Christ Jesus is Lord over all things. That is good news. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray earnestly. Amen.